Oftentimes in the morning worship, there are lyrics that just catch my attention and match the point of the text for that morning so well. The song we just sang, No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future, sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and He was raised to overthrow the grave. So what is the point, church? The point is this. To this I hold. My sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing. I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen and amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, would you please turn again to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It is likely that we will celebrate an, a new anniversary soon. In about three weeks, we will be in 1 Peter chapter 3. We are going to be making some progress. Today we are covering two verses. The next two weeks we'll cover verses 24 and 25 respectively. And then looks like towards the second week in February, we will be in 1 Peter chapter 3. Well, this morning our text is verses 22 to 23. In order to give the context, I'll back up to verse 18. The Word of God says, Servants or slaves or household slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He, that is Christ, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Well, amen. Thus is the reading of the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessings on this time. As Jeremy has prayed and asked, and I ask again, this word means nothing to us apart from the illumination of your Holy Spirit, that he work in us that which is pleasing to you, that we be conformed as we sang and hopefully prayed in song to you this morning that we be more conformed to the image of Jesus. As all of our songs this morning were so directly related to Jesus, His sacrifice, His atonement, the justification that He brought us, all the gifts that are ours in Christ. Help us to, this morning, come into a realization of what truly belongs to us now that we are new covenant members with Jesus, co-heirs with Christ, a royal priesthood, 
an entire nation that is called holy by you. Please help us to come into these promises, to get, grasp a greater understanding of what you mean, of what is ours, of what power is in our hands by virtue of Christ in us. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Lord, help us to see this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one thing, beloved, that I try and do in the preaching each morning is let the tone of the sermon match the tone of the text. That's a little pro tip for preaching. You want the tone of your sermon to match the tone of the text. If it is a conciliatory text, you'd like for your tone in the sermon to match that. If it is a charge or a rebuke, you want the tone of the sermon to match the tone of the text. It's just a simple exegetical tool to assist in understanding. I want to give you a heads up though that this morning I am not planning on letting my tone match the text. You might say, well, why, Chris? Well, we've been talking about slaves and masters and submitting to even the cruel that are over us. We've been talking about God's favor for those who suffer while living blamelessly and the calling of Christians to live like Jesus. Today's text, Peter explains to us the pattern of Christ that we as Christians are to walk in. He makes explicit what he's only described generally at this point by outlining the life of Christ and the way that he lived. This was meant to instruct and propel the suffering Christians in the early church towards Christ's likeness. So why do I want to change my tone in this sermon? Well, let's just take a, a brief pause and think about the differences between us and the text that we're examining this morning. And there are some significant differences. We mentioned several of these in weeks past. First of all, no one here is enslaved, at least not like the brothers and sisters that were being addressed in the text were enslaved. Second, no one here is receiving physical brutality for the sake of righteousness. Yes, you've probably received some outward inconveniences uh, because of your faith. You might think of things that are going on in our world right now having to do with masks and mandates and vaccines and things of that nature, but nobody is getting a beatdown for acting like Jesus, at least at this point. As the writer of the Hebrews says, in struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Lastly, and this is the kicker, with all of these blessings and freedoms won for you through the suffering and martyrdom by the faithful throughout the ages, I ask you, church, are you here? The elect exiles meeting at Christ the King with all the advantages of living in America under what remains of the Western Christian tradition. Are you following the pattern of Christ? You might respond by saying, well, I'm Reformed. I read from an essentially literal translation of the Bible. I know my eschatology and why the law of God still matters. I claim to be confessional. And I hold to the Westminster or the 1689. But I still ask you, church, do you look like Jesus? Brothers and sisters, our doctrine matters immensely. But doctrine, apart from repentance and faith in Christ, 
which over time conforms us to the image of Christ, that doctrine alone will send you to hell. If this message comes across as challenging rather than consoling, I want you to know why. To paraphrase Jim Elliott, today we are looking for a soft word. Perhaps what we need is a kick in the pants. Well, Jesus, you see in our text here this morning, is said to have committed no sin. Look at verse 22 with me. Jesus committed no sin. In order for us to understand the pattern of Christ, in order for us to understand what it means to be conformed to Christ's likeness, to suffer well in this world, in the face of various trials and temptations, Peter takes us to Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant. And every one of the bits and pieces that we're going to look at from 1 Peter chapter 22, verses 22 to 25 over the next three weeks is taken some way from Isaiah 53. I'll read a portion of that text now. It is said by the prophet Isaiah that Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that for the transgression of my people striking was due to him, so his grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. You see verse 22 right there. Isaiah and Peter speak principally here of Christ's passion, of His time as He makes His way down the Via Dolorosa, that way of suffering to the cross. But Jesus' whole life, you know, beloved, was one of suffering. I want you to know two things about the life of Christ. Number one, Jesus' suffering was never the result of sin. Jesus' suffering was never the result of His sin. I ask you a question, beloved. Did Jesus ever get a spanking? Now, that might seem like a silly question. And all the kids said, no, Jesus didn't get a spanking. I wonder, though, did Jesus get a spanking? Now, are you getting nervous at this point? Like, what do you mean, right? Of course He didn't. Of course He didn't. He was sinless. How could He get a spanking? Well, He was sinless. But were his parents? They were not. And to all my Roman Catholic friends, Mary was not sinless. Joseph and Mary perhaps misunderstood Jesus' actions. What if they had disciplined him? But Jesus' suffering was never the result of his sin. Christ never once suffered because he sinned. We have to firmly fix that in our minds, beloved. This is so incomprehensible to the mind of even a Christian, even a man or a woman full of the Holy Spirit. How do we comprehend that never in any point in his life did any sin enter in and he give vent to it? Did he give in to temptation? Never, not once. It's so unbelievable and incomprehensible. The second thing that I want you to know is that Jesus' suffering 
never resulted in sin. Jesus' suffering never resulted in sin. With all the suffering that Jesus went through, never once did it lead to sin. Again, the writer of Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Was Jesus ever tempted to lust? Absolutely he was. Absolutely he was. He was tempted in every way as we are. Jesus, as we mentioned last week, was a man. He had XY chromosome pattern in his body. He was male. He had the same sorts of desires and drives that any man would have. He had to be a man in order to perfectly be identified with Adam and thus fulfill what Adam did not. To completely substitute and take the place and be the new and better Adam. So was Jesus ever tempted to lust. I imagine as he sat at the well and the woman who came to draw water, there could have been temptation that came on him to think inappropriately of her. But as Jesus, even in that moment, suffered from thirst, he did not give in to temptation. He did not sin. He did not allow himself to give in to what would be for us a sinful and fleshy desire. Jesus did not give in to it. Christians, what can we take away from the fact that Jesus committed no sin? If we are to walk in the pattern of Christ, Christians must not sin. Let me say that again. Christians must not sin. Now, I know what you're thinking. The thoughts arise in your mind. Um, Chris, nobody's perfect. How am I going to make it all the way through my life without sinning? Um, Chris, I don't think that that's possible. I mean, even thinking that way is not helpful because I know before the end of the day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sin. Something's going to happen and I'm going to fall into temptation and I'm going to sin. Well, I'm not talking about perfectionism. I'm not talking about sinless perfectionism. First John, John records in the first chapter of First John, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Beloved, until the flesh is no more, sin in us will remain. However, I'm not saying that you should have no sin. You will. You will always have need of Christ. I'm saying if we are to be conformed to the pattern of Christ, we must not sin. John also says in chapter 3 of 1 John, In Him, that is Jesus, there is no sin. Sounds a lot like what Peter's saying here in 1 Peter. Listen to this, beloved. No one who abides in Jesus sins. No one who sins has ever seen Him or has come to know Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does righteousness is righteous, just as He, Jesus, is righteous. The one who does not sin is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God was manifested for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin, because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, beloved, I, I read this passage to you, and I say something so strong, like Christians must not sin. 
Because the desires that immediately come to your mind are the desires that we need to put out of our mind. And that is that Christians should have no room for excuses for our sin. We should have no room for excuse. But Chris, I'm going to sin before the day's out. Wait a sec. Stop. Pause. Think about that for just a minute. What did you subtly just allow for? There's a chance I may sin later today. So I I got to have room for that. Beloved, why can't we leave a text like this where the pattern Christ set for us, he committed no sin and say, you know what? I'm done with it. I don't want to sin anymore. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of this having dominion over me. I want to walk in newness of life. I want to walk triumphantly in Christ. When is the last time, beloved, that somebody addressed you about your sin? Can I ask you a question? Did you get defensive? Was it there lurking under the surface? Hey, you don't understand. You don't know what just happened to me. I've had a rough day. They said this to me. The children have been like this. You don't understand. Why are we making excuses for our sin? Why? In Him, no sin. To walk in the pattern of Him. I am done with sinning. Let's steal this in our minds. I'm done with it. I don't want to do this anymore. Beloved, the Israelites came into the land of Canaan, the land to which God had promised them, this is your property. This is your land. Every square inch of it belongs to you. All the produce, the milk, the honey, all the goodness of this earth that you step on belongs to you. And immediately when they walked into the land and spied it out, the spies came back and many gave a bad report. They said, the land which we have passed through to spy out on is a land which devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw there are men of great size. What did they come back with? God says, this is your property. They said, sorry, I've got an excuse. No, I don't believe you. It's not my property. There's too many enemies on that property. They're too numerous. They're too strong. Beloved, when will we believe God that the land that He promised us belongs to us already? And what does He say? Go up and take possession. What's really going on in the Joshua story? You're seeing Israel, the ancient people of God, go in and take possession of a land to which God had given them. But this is a picture and a window into the greater picture of Christians walking in the new covenant. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. But I don't know. I'm, I'm a pretty bad dude, and I don't know that I can believe that. And I, I'm, too wor- I'm a worm. And, and What do we do? We bring excuses to God. I think that Christians should become like those kind of old crotchety people that sit out on their front porch and tell kids to get off their lawn, right? Tammy and I have an access road behind our uh, house, and there's people from the neighborhood that walk up the access road. There haven't been any people living in our house for years. And so they just think, okay, this is public land, right? And I've started to turn into that guy lately. I'm the old crotchety man. Hey, this is private property. Get off. No, we've been on this road for years. Not anymore. It's my property. Get off, okay? Now, you may think that that's not very hospitable and that's not very Christ-like. But with our sin, can we agree that we should treat it this way? Get off my lawn. 
This is my property. The blood of Jesus paid the price for all these new covenant promises for me to have a life that is not dominated by sin anymore. Sin shall have no dominion over you. You're not under law. You're under grace now. Everything that you need to fight and defeat and kill sin, God has poured out and given to you. Get off my lawn. No more. I'm tired of it. No more excuses, brothers and sisters. The pattern of Christ is no sin. But Chris, what if I do sin? Well, there's good news. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is there for you when you fall. Jesus is there for you to pick you up. Every sin in the life of a Christian has been atoned for. And all the grace that you need to fight and defeat sin in your life is yours. No more. Stop. I'm over it. I must not sin anymore. Just quit it. Set it out of your mind. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to give myself a back door out. No, I'm done with it. I'm tired of being mad at my kids all the time. I'm tired of shouting at my wife. I'm tired of getting mad at my employees or my coworkers at work and talking about them behind their back. I'm done with it. I'm over it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to let this have dominion over me. Because all the grace I need to fight sin is mine in Christ Jesus. Look at what Peter says next. He says that Jesus committed no sin and also deceit was not found in his mouth. The Greek word dolos here means guile or trickery. The root meaning of the Greek is to bait or decoy, right? To lure someone in. Jesus stood before the council in Luke 22. And we read this. As the day came, the Sanhedrin of elders of the people assembled, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to the Sanhedrin saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, So you're the Son of God then? And Jesus said to them, You yourselves say that I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Jesus, in the hour of his great trial, has an opportunity to get out of this situation. All he's got to do is answer the question by denying it. No, you know what? I'm not the son of God. Easy out. And he doesn't. He could trick them. He could trap them in their words. He's been doing that a lot. He could lie to them. How would we respond in moments of great trial like this? When we are tempted to back off from the proclamation of the gospel, from the truth of someone's sin that needs to be addressed and we need to speak plainly about it and we don't because we're afraid we might hurt their feelings. What if Jesus had responded, well, I guess it depends on what you mean by son of God. I mean, I am a son and some people call my father God, but not everybody believes stuff like that these days. I'm not out to offend anybody. I just want to be a friend to man. I'm just here practicing faithful presence. I'm here saying some really nice things. The people that, I mean, you question 
The question that you ask me is one of those things that good people disagree on. I think God whispers about these sorts of things anyway. I'm the kind of man that shouts about what God shouts about. Him who has ears to hear, let him hear the tongue in my cheek. It's so easy to want to back off of truth, beloved. And today, leaders in the evangelical world are backing off of the proclamation of truth. They're backing off of standing for truth because they know it will be hard, they know it will cost them, and they're not willing to pay the price. I want you to remember, in this moment when Jesus was standing before the Sanhedrin, He knew what was coming. Not just the suffering, not just the words, not the beating, the lashing, not even the nails in the hands and the feet. He knew the wrath of God was going to be poured out on Him on the cross. He knew it. Was He tempted in every way as we are? Yes. Could he have been tempted in that moment to easy out? Peter says deceit wasn't found in his mouth. He didn't try and wiggle his way out of it. He didn't lie. He wasn't cowardly. By the way, beloved, deceit can be used in a, an appropriate and even righteous way. The Hebrew midwives lied to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1. David lied to the priest in 1 Samuel 21. Corey Ten Boom, you know, trained for weeks to answer a midnight intruder, what juice? And she did, and saved the lives of many. But the principle is this, when it comes to the testimony of the gospel, when it comes to the external call, no backing off. You see, that's exactly what Christ was dealing with before the Sanhedrin. It wasn't an issue of doctrinal differences. It was, are you the Christ? He did not back off. He stood for the truth of the gospel, I am the Son of God. And beloved, we make fun of a lot of these squishy evangelical types. But when it comes to giving the external call, we cave as well. We need to repent and find grace in time of our need that we would stand for Christ. Look at what Peter says in verse 24. Excuse me, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. First, Jesus did not answer reviling with reviling. The Greek word here means to reproach, to rail at, to revile, to heap abuse upon. Think to vilify someone. That's what's meant here. In John chapter 9, the man born blind was being interrogated by the Pharisees. And they said to him, Excuse me. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. They vilified him. Jesus did also not follow his suffering with threats. In Acts 4.17, of the council threatening the disciples to cease from preaching the gospel. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn, the ESV translates, the word is actually threaten, them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Beloved, think about this. Who sees perfectly the hearts and minds of all people? Jesus. Who understands inerrantly the difference between sin and righteousness? Jesus. Who knows full well what judgment day will be like? Jesus. Who has access to the aid of innumerable angels in His hour of need? Jesus. Having done nothing wrong, having never sinned. Jesus was tortured 
and murder, if anyone had an excuse to vilify, to rail at, to threaten with the forces of heaven, Jesus did. And yet, he was silent. Here again from Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. How are we to understand our Savior's perfect behavior here? Think about the imprecatory psalms. You think about how these psalmists will oftentimes seem to rail at his enemies. Or what about Jesus calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers? Or what about the martyrs in Revelation calling for justice, calling for vindication? Beloved, there is a right kind of reviling. There is a right kind of threat that comes with judgment day. So what's the issue here? Again, the issue is sin. Jesus never entertained sinful anger or frustration. It never came out of his body through threats, reviling, or deceit. Not once. Matthew Henry said, Our blessed Redeemer was perfectly holy. He was so free from sin that no temptation, no provocation whatsoever could extort from him so much as the least sinful or indecent word. That's exactly what Peter's talking about here. Not the least indecent or sinful word. Beloved, this is the hard truth. We are the softest, most self-centered generation, perhaps, in the history of the world. We aren't experiencing anything like the suffering for righteousness that Jesus experienced or the people who were written to here in 1 Peter. Stephen experienced worse. So did the twelve. So did the early church. The church fathers and yes, the reformers experienced far worse than we're experiencing today. And yet, in Christian homes all across America, reviling and threatening happens all the time. Husbands revile wives. Wives revile husbands. By the way, bitterness in the heart is the silent reviling that God still hears. Fathers threaten their children. Wives threaten husbands, even sometimes in a jocular manner. Well, I was just kidding. Ladies, not only does God think it's abominable when you try and use techniques to get some authority over your husband. Not only does your husband think that's abominable, think about this. Your children detest that. They hate that. They look at mommy trying to manipulate daddy. They're like, it wasn't supposed to be this way. God didn't create her to rule over him. Children know that. They know. That's not right. Mommy shouldn't be that way. Children, have you considered the cost of your reviling and threatening? Last week, I read a list of vices from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Young people, listen up. Do you remember that revilers is on that list? Do you know how many verbally abusive, railing, scoffing children will inherit the kingdom of God? None. None. Not one child 
who reviles, threatens, rails at their parents will inherit the kingdom of God. But Pastor Chris, you don't know how hard it is. My mom and dad and my siblings provoke me all the time. It's like this nonstop in my home. Some wise words from Matthew Henry again for the young people. Provocations to sin can never justify the commission of it. The rudeness, cruelty, and injustice of enemies will not justify Christians in reviling and revenge. The reasons for sin can never be so great, but we have always stronger reasons to avoid it. Always. By the way, children, Paul said something similar. He said, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Young people, can I encourage you today? Consider your lot before the Lord. Consider what's coming on Judgment Day. One act of reviling against your parents dooms you to hell forever. My children and I were talking about this last night as we're going through the story of Cain and Abel. I never realized this till we read it last night. Cain got angry because Abel presented the best of his flocks to the Lord. Cain gave an offering, but the scriptures don't tell us that it was his best. God had no regard for Cain's offering. He had regard for Abel's offering. And children, do you know what? Cain reviled his brother in his heart. He hated him. He reviled him so much that the murder had already taken place in his heart. It might as well happen. And it did. You know, children, he killed his brother. And then when God addressed him about it, I never realized this until last night. Cain didn't repent. He did not repent. What did he do? He made an excuse. He said, oh, you've laid a punishment on me that's too hard. You ever thought about that? Not once did he consider, wait a sec, I just killed my brother. That's kind of a problem. I should repent of that. I need to be reconciled to my God. Children, if there's reviling in your heart right now, I'm telling you, judgment day is coming. Repent while there is still time. The gospel of Jesus is open the scriptures tell us to the least all the way to the greatest. From the youngest all the way to the oldest. From the earliest moments that the mind can comprehend sin and the atonement of Christ. Children, you can turn in faith and repentance to Christ and He receives 100% of children and young adults and adults and married and retired and widowed. He receives 100% of them. Every one of them, He says, I won't turn them away. You come to me in repentance and faith, I receive you. I welcome you into the kingdom. Husbands, wives, single people, young people. Today is the day. Today's the day of salvation. You can repent even today and come to Christ. Well, lastly, Peter tells us in verse 23 that Jesus entrusted himself to the just judge. It says, He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. I don't want to go into too much detail about the Greek here, but there is a note that you should maybe make note of. If you make notes in your Bible, in your margin, or in a notebook. The Greek in this sentence lacks the pronoun himself. It lacks the pronoun himself. Let me read verse 23 again. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, 
He did not threaten, but he continued entrusting to him who judges justly. Now, why did the translators add himself? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, and this is most likely, the English doesn't make as much sense unless it has an object, right? So what object could Jesus most likely be entrusting to the Lord? Well, his self, of course. But I do want you to know that the Greek lacks that pronoun. I've spoken to a Greek scholar this week and made sure that I was on the right page here. But it does, in fact, lack that pronoun. So what is Peter getting at here? Well, I think he's talking about Jesus entrusting his self to the Father. But I think it's likely he's talking about more than that. Not just entrusting himself, but everything around him that was happening. God, do you see what they're doing to me? Do you see the way they're treating me? Do you see how I'm suffering? I'm going to give all this to you. You're the just judge of all the earth. As Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's exactly the heart of Christ in this moment. Probably going to get a beat down from Wendell Schrock after the service, but I do want to quote from the New Living Translation. (laughs) Because strangely enough, I think that the New Living Translation actually nails this verse, believe it or not. Okay? It says this, Jesus, he left his case in the hands of God who always judges righteously. He left his case in the hands of God. What's he saying? Look at this, all this stuff, here's my case, I present it to you. Beloved, if we're going to survive the persecution and suffering that is likely coming in our lifetimes, I think we need to first put a moratorium on sin. I'm done with it. No more. Wait, wait, what if I sin? It doesn't matter. You have an advocate with the Father. Get it out of your minds. I don't want to do this anymore. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I can defeat this. Are you talking about sinless perfectionism? No. Stop sinning. Stop it. Cut it out. This is how we're going to prepare to suffer in the future. We've got to be done with this nonsense. Secondly, we should follow the pattern of Jesus outlined here at the end of verse 23. What was Jesus' response when being wrongfully treated? He did not sin. He did not deceive. He did not revile. He did not threaten. But, Father, you see, you know, you judge. You see, you know, you judge. That's it. Beloved, that's the secret to Christians facing trial. God, you see, you know, you judge. And I'm talking about any kinds of trials. I'm talking about trials in the home with a bunch of kids that are going crazy. All these sinners before my eyes. What am I to do, okay? You see, you know, you judge. Be a responsible dad, spank the misbehavior, and then give your case over to God. There's no reason to get angry at him. Now, we should, fathers, be angry at our children's sin. It is wrong. It is heinous in the sight of God. I'm not telling you to be stoic and I must be placid. I just spank, 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 and that's it. Okay, that's not the way that we're to act. Our children should know when you do something wrong, your father is visibly displeased. But that displeasure does not lead you then to sin against your child in spanking them in anger as though it's personal. Guys, it was personal here. It was personal. They're killing the Son of God who never did anything wrong. Jesus never let it become one of these, I'm going to get you back. Murder in his heart like Cain? Never. Not one time. Have faith in God. He's going to make it right. Have no fear, weak Christian. 
Your faith in God, yes, even your faith in God right now, is a gift of God's grace. J.I. Packer said, I need not torment myself with the fear that my faith may fail. Grace led me to faith in the first place. So grace will keep me believing to the end. Faith, both in its origin and continuance, is a gift of grace. Beloved, this is really what I'm getting at here. All of the power of God, all of the promises of the new covenant are ours. They're already ours. And Jesus says, so come get them. I'm scared. I'm fearful. I've got too much sin. I'm not worthy. All of that is nonsense. Excuses. Christ, through His atonement, has made you worthy. Come take your promises. They're yours. I've heard many fathers, and I've heard mothers as well, tell me that in child training, there's a very small gap between their children acting foolishly and bitterness rising in their heart towards their child. Resentment, pride, anger, outbursts of reviling, threats being broadcasted within earshot of everybody in the home. Very small window. It is in that moment that your actions as a parent show where your faith lies. Jesus in his greatest hour of trial, which none of us have experienced and no one will ever experience, you think the window was small? About as small as it gets. Didn't sin. By the way, did Christ suffer for himself in that moment? Was Christ in that moment of his passion suffering for himself? He wasn't. He was suffering for you. In the moment for parents in the room, when you're struggling because your child is misbehaving, this is when you give yourself for their sake. This is about them and their relationship with God. It's not personal. This is how we act like Christ in our home. It's time that we see that the discipline, the correction, the disobedience, all of it, it's not about us. I'm not saying that there's not multiple things going on in moments like this. I'm not saying that you aren't being sanctified. I'm not saying that children, excuse me, Yes, that children shouldn't respect their parents. I'm not saying that their sin is impersonal and your response should be stoic. Jesus, as I mentioned, had an opinion about what was being done to him and he handed that over to God. He never let it become personal. He suffered for the sake of his bride. I was talking to a brother earlier this week about how to know when you're getting ready to cross that line and in anger sin against your child. My counsel was to remember how much strength you have in that the favor of God is at work in your home. Beloved, we have so much strength because of the favor of God in Christian homes. We do. Imagine a bodybuilder, a man who spends all of his time at the gym, taking all the pills and doing all the weightlifting and everything, these massive, huge men with all the muscles. And then his wife hands him a pickle jar, okay? Right? This is my job. I opened the pickle jar. If that man with all of that strength uses all of his strength to open the pickle jar, what's going to happen? He's going to break the jar. He's going to get a bunch of glass in his hands. 
He doesn't need that much strength. All he needs is enough to open the jar. Beloved, when you're dealing with children and misbehavior in your home, remember all the weight of the favor of God is behind you in training that child for righteousness. You don't need to throw in extra weight on top of it. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt your child. You're going to ruin your family. Don't do it. God's favor is with us. We forget the fact that in our long obedience in the same direction, we have the favor and strength of God Almighty working before us. Remember this, beloved. We are God's agents. We're God's men, God's women. The power of the Most High is at work in your life because you belong to Jesus. When I'm witnessing on the sidewalk, well, what if I don't have the right words? The power of God is with you. Witness, share the gospel, do what Christ commanded, follow Him in obedience. You don't have to worry about it. Let Christ take care of that. Do your job as a parent. Leave the rest up to God. If you aren't married, do what God has put in front of you right now and leave the rest to Him. You don't have to wonder and ask yourself a ton of questions and become immobile. Do what God has put in front of you. Leave the rest to Him. Let His strength work for you. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Isaiah 64, 4. For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. Jesus, in the hour of his trial, I wait for you. The judgment's yours. It's in your hand. This is how we're going to endure suffering. This is how we're going to walk in the pattern of Christ. This is how we're going to be victorious in the days to come. No matter what happens, they put out a social credit system and then you've got to do all the right things and not use too much gas and, oh, he bought too much alcohol that weekend and they're taking all this into account and suddenly you're getting persecuted. Why? Because you're targeted as a Christian. Could that happen? Sure it could. I was talking to my brother about it yesterday. Technology's already there. They can do it as soon as they want. How are we going to survive? You see, you know, you judge. It's yours. I don't have to get angry. I don't have to get mad about this. God hates this. I hate it too. He'll judge. I'm going to give it to Him. To some of you, it may be unimaginable that we might have to suffer like Christ and His apostles did. I would also remind you like the early church did. I would also remind you like many Christians throughout the world are suffering even today. Beloved, it would be wise for us to steel our minds to the fact that this is likely to happen. It certainly looks like we're headed in that direction. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The scriptures remind us of this. Are you readying yourself for it right now? Are you looking to Christ to follow the pattern of His life? J.C. Ryle said, It is vain to expect a man to do much for Christ when he has no sense of debt to Christ. Do you remember what he paid for you? Do you remember what it cost to buy you? The tremendous, unimaginable cost that Christ paid for each of us. What a debt to him we owe. Are you, beloved, dealing violently with your sin? Are you making no excuses for your sin? Is the kingdom of God the primary concern in your life? Do you find yourself repeatedly trying to overcome evil with evil? 
Are you sick and tired of your old self rearing its ugly head and having dominion over you? By the Holy Spirit, kick the flesh off your new covenant inheritance lawn and get about the things that God has for you. Said we need a kick in the pants. Maybe we need to give sin a kick in the pants. Get out. Get off my lawn. This is mine now in Christ. I'll close with the words from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as no longer to live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have worked out the desires of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality and lusts and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In all this, they, the wicked, are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, maligning you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Remember, beloved, you know, you see, you judge. Let's pray. Father, it is in this moment that as your word is open to us, we are reminded of all of those promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. We are told that we will always have to wage war against our flesh. We are also told that by the Holy Spirit we can put to death the deeds of the body. And we want to ask scientific questions about whether or not that means we could ever attain a state of perfection or something like that. Instead of deciding that we will not make excuses for our sin anymore and that we're going to actively war against our sin. That when sin arises in our hearts as we live our lives in the various places to which you have called us, we will not choose sin. Lord, we can do this. Your word offers us this. Jesus did not sin and Peter said, you should walk in the pattern of Christ. To this you were called. Lord, our effectual calling was such that not only were we justified, but we will be sanctified into the image of Jesus. Help us to be a people that are waging war against our sin. And as perhaps a season of darkness approaches this side of the globe or even the entire world, let us be the people that are found to have had enough with what the Gentiles do all the time. And we put it away and we're walking with Christ moment by moment. And if sin arises in our hearts, remembering we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Oh Lord, I ask that every person here would set Christ so principally before their mind. That He would be what we abide in. And that abiding in Him, not only would we bear much fruit, which we love to think about. I want to abide in Christ, Lord, so I can bear you much fruit. But your word also tells us when we're abiding in Him, 
He's preserving us from making sinful choices. Help us to pursue Christ to this end, that we might honor Him by walking in newness of life, in righteousness, for the sake of His kingdom, for the advancement of the gospel. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. What should be, let it shall be in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus our Savior that we ask these things. Amen. Beloved, we are going to convert this room to our eating place. If we can get the men and the young boys to help us with that. Ladies, we're going to go start to prepare the food. Um, We will have psalm sing shortly after lunch. We're not going to wait until 2 o'clock or anything like that. We'll be probably doing it around 1 o'clock, somewhere in that neighborhood, maybe 1, 1 1.30. We'll give you an advance notice to let you know, hey, we're getting ready to uh, convert this room back to uh, psalm sing and set up for that. So be prepared for that. We hope you can stay with us. If you forgot to bring your Psalter, we do have extras that we can share. People can stand next to each other and share Psalters. We're going to try and principally sing out of those Psalters so we can put those into use, not just here, but also you can put those into use in your home. Well, as we close, hear the words of Paul to the church in Thessalonica. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of His saints. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, beloved. You're dismissed.